You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Laura, and um, I'm a long-term member here, and I've also recently um, taken on a bit of a role as um, heading up our community initiatives as a church, Um, and it's good to be sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, Joel is actually sharing at one of our other ACM churches in Berwick this morning. Um, So Joel, any visitors, is my husband, and he is the lead pastor here, I guess. Um, So he's sharing at Jeff and Joe Baker's church. We've had Jeff come and share here before, and he's now gone to return the favour this morning. So that's where he is. Um, But yeah, you get me this morning. So um, we're... Oh, that's encouraging. That's nice. (laughs) Um, How about we pray this morning as we look at God's word together? Lord, uh, we are so thankful to be here in your house this morning. As was said earlier, we could be anywhere today, but God, we choose to be here and we're so grateful um, that we've made that choice, God, because it is the best choice for us right in these couple of hours on our Sunday morning, Lord, to be here this morning, to, to be in your presence, to be with each other, to be encouraged um, by you, Jesus, and, and your Holy Spirit moving amongst us and within us. We are excited to be here, and we just want to position ourselves this morning to, to receive from what you have for us from your word today. God, um, there's so many uh, influences and inputs um, all around us, Lord, pouring things into our lives, but we just want to take this moment to say that we want your authority um, over us and uh, within us, Lord. And so we look to you this morning. We want to position ourselves under the authority of your word um, to receive what you have for us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to um, explore with you the topic, um, or the question rather, how does God respond when we fail? We're going to ask the question this morning, how does God respond when we sin? When you sin, when I sin, and remember, as we've spoken the last few weeks, when we say sin, we're talking about a choice within our hearts to walk independent of God. Um, That's evidenced by choices, actions, behaviours in our lives, but at the root of it all is a heart issue, a heart that wants to do its own thing. We want to make our own decisions to carve our own paths in life. That's what we're really talking about when we sin. We're talking about a heart issue. And how does God respond when we fail, when we sin? Last, we left off um, our journey through God's story as we've been um, walking through this year together. Um, We came to the point where God had rescued the Israelites from abject slavery and cruelty down in Egypt fulfilling the promise that he'd made so many centuries earlier to Abraham. And he'd miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and had them camp at Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he met with the Israelites in the most extraordinary and awe-inspiring of ways to make covenant with them, to bond himself to Israel as their God, promising that he would bless them as a people if only they would choose to position themselves under his authority because he knew that this is the place where they're going to thrive best. That's how he's made all of us as humans, to be under his authority. And that's where blessing is. And in doing so, that they would be a witness to all the nations around them to show how truly awesome, how wonderful life lived is with God at the centre. 
And um, at Mount Sinai, God provided them the law. And last week um, on Good Friday, actually, Joel shared with us that God desires communion. He desires relationship with humanity. But because he is holy, that means he is one of a kind, he is entirely unique to anything or anyone else we could ever put our minds to. He cannot be compared. Because he is holy, he said, he has told us that he finds that sin, our choice to walk independent of him, just so offensive. He finds it so offensive that we simply cannot draw near to him in that state with our hearts in that state. But the dilemma is that he wants us desperately to draw near to him. And so the law was given so that the Israelites could move from that impure state as a sinful people to be near to a holy God who wants to be near to them. And so after 11 months or so of camping at Mount Sinai, and being made ready, that was what this period was all about. It was about a time of readiness, being made ready as a nation um, to be God's people out in the world. Um, God calls Israel to move, to move on. He's got them ready and he said, it's time to go into the promised land, the land that I've promised to give to Abraham and his descendants all those years ago. They were on the verge of obtaining that promise. And that's where we come this morning to the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers gets its title from its Greek translation based on the many census lists it contains. And you can open up Numbers sometimes and you can be tempted to put it down because the first few chapters are filled with this many people from this tribe, this many in this tribe. They're counting off all the people in the tribes of Israel. Um, However, the title given this book in the Hebrew um, can actually be translated as In the Desert. Hang on, Laura. In the desert? I thought you just said that the Israelites were on the verge of entering the promised land. Wasn't that meant to be the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise? In the desert? It doesn't really sound like it fits the description of um, the land flowing with milk and honey, does it? And you'd be right. (laughs) And we all exhale a big sigh because the title of the book gives itself away. No, we are not heading to the promised land just yet. We are in the desert. What a downer. Why, you ask? Well, long story short, sin. Sin is the big issue here. Israel cannot enter the promised land as God had wanted for them to do in the time that he had wanted for them to enter because they continue time and time and time again to walk independently of God. They choose not to trust God, but they choose to rebel. They choose to walk their own paths, thinking that they know what is best for themselves and for their nation. And so, coming back to this message this morning, we ask the question, how does God respond when we fail, when we sin? And the book of Numbers is a brilliant case study on this matter. So we're going to take a very, very brief, like 30,000-foot flyover view of the earlier parts of Numbers this morning, and we're going to come in to focus our attentions. We're going to land the plane, so to speak, at Numbers 22 to 24 to focus our attention in on this question, how does God respond when we fail, when we sin? Are you ready? 
Here's the flyover. Very, very brief. Go back and read in your own time. After putting the finishing touches on the social, military, worship arrangements for Israel in preparation for them to enter the promised land, in Numbers 10, we read that the cloud of God's presence over the tabernacle, it lifts. And this is a huge moment because when the cloud of God's presence lifted, it meant that they too were to follow God's presence wherever the cloud went. So it was time for them to move on. This was their time for them to enter the promised land, right? Wrong. (laughs) Well, it was, but they didn't take that opportunity because no sooner had they left Sinai than the people started complaining again. And this time about their hardships. Remember, this was a group that had not, only, not just a year ago been heavily oppressed people in Egypt under a tyrannical ruler. Um, and here they are, God's delivered them miraculously, shown them visibly all of his provision for them, and they're complaining about their hardships. And so in chapter 11, we see that their complaints anger God, and he sends fire to consume the outskirts of the camp. It's pretty confronting for us as modern readers of the text, but it's basically um, a sign. God is saying to them, hold up here. I'm a holy God among you. You need to put your trust in me. I am, I am due respect and honour. Please give me that. Please follow me. No sooner had this happened than people complain once again, and this time they're complaining about their diet. They're saying, we don't have enough meat to eat. And again, this is a people that 12 months or so ago had been absolutely enslaved in Egypt, but they're complaining about what they've got to eat as they've been rescued and are now a free people. And so meat they craved and meat they got, and God sent a mass of quail into their camp, and it says that they were piled like three feet, what's three feet high among the camp. That's how much quail. It's like God saying, here you go, eat it. Reminds me of like a parent. Well, I am a parent now. But yeah, it reminds me of a parent who would say to the child, here you go, you want your fill of ice cream? Here it is until you're sick. That's what they did to, that's what God did to the people of Israel. He said, here you go, here's the quail. And he actually sent a plague to judge them, um, the Israelites, in that moment as well. Again, saying, I am holy among you. I need your respect. Let's do this together. You need to trust me. As if that wasn't enough, After seeing how God had interacted with Moses um, as he delivered them uh, through Moses from Egypt, he'd brought them through the Red Sea under Moses' leadership. He'd brought them through Mount Sinai and God interacting with with, uh, Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, start to question, does Moses really have this special relationship with God? (laughs) Beggar's belief to my way of thinking, but they're saying, you know, does Moses really have this special relationship with God? Surely it's for all of us. And um, so God at that moment, absolutely wanting to confirm Moses, his choice in Moses' leadership, brings Aaron and Miriam to his tent and he judges them there on no uncertain terms and says, yes, absolutely, Moses is my man. Uh, You need to follow him. But again, complain, complaint. So we get the impression here that Israel is absolutely testing God's patience. He's reminding them time after time of his holiness. Remember, that means he's set apart. He's entirely different. He gets to set the agenda because he is God. Um, He is gracious in disciplining them and not destroying them, but his patience is being 
tested. And then in what is um, marked in the scripture as the final straw, so to speak, God, Yahweh, he commands Moses to send some men to explore Canaan, which was the promised land, and to report back on what they would find when they went there. He didn't say to them, go and see if you can conquer the promised land. He said, go and scout it out and report back on what you will find when you get there. So 12 men are sent, one from each of the tribes of Israel. Two men, Caleb and Joshua, come back and they say, absolutely, we can do this. This is a brilliant land. It's just as God said, let's go now. He's with us. However, the other 10, they sow seeds of doubt and of fear amongst the people. And they say, we can't do this. There is no way. We will just be obliterated. They are stronger. They are taller than us. Um, there's no way that this is the land that we can conquer. And um, from this point, all the Israelites jump on the bandwagon and then they start wailing and grumbling. They're saying, we should have died in Egypt. <laughs> Seriously, we should have died in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. Come on, let's choose a new leader from among us. And Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua at this point, they plead with the people and they say, please stop, just trust God. This is the land. He's shown us how he will provide for us. Just trust in him. We can do this with him on our side. However, the Israelites just want to stone them. So God, in all of his glory, he comes into that situation and he appears to all of the Israelites at the tent of meeting. And he laments that the nation of Israel, after all they have seen and experienced of his person, of his character, of his coming through on his promises, he laments um, his decision, basically, to bring them out of Egypt. And he, and he says, step aside, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and I'm going to start again with you. I've had enough. And this isn't the first time, remember, this happened also at Sinai. Um, but Moses intercedes for the people. He steps in on their behalf and he pleads with God, God, what would the people around, what would all these nations around us say if you just destroy this people that you've brought out of Egypt? What good is that going to do for your glory and for your name? And God relents. He forgives the people. However, he determines at that point that their persistent lack of faith in him their lack of faith in his character and his ability to do what he says he will do for them will have a consequence. And that consequence is this. He says no one who is 20 years old or over will be able to enter the promised land. For 40 years, you will wander around and around the desert and only your children will inherit the promised land. That's where this book gets its title, In the Desert. 40 long years in the desert. They could have gone up to that land in a matter of weeks. I think um, some scholars say it might have taken them about 11 or 12 days. About 40 years is how long. And then none of them got in there anyway, only their children. Every last one of them died in the desert. They needed to learn still to walk by faith in God and his promises. And so from that point, again, coming into chapter 22 now, where we'll stay for the rest of the message, but... 15 to 22, still, time after time after time of lack of trust, lack of um, belief that God can do what he says he will do, and they continue to need to be taught to trust in God's character and his provision for them in the desert. And then we come to this strange set, and it absolutely is a strange set of events in Numbers 22, 24. And this is where we'll camp this morning. 
This is what happens. So after the 40 years has almost passed at this point in time, I think there might be a map um, up there showing like where their journey is taking them around and around and around. And they are right up the top right-hand corner near Mount Nebo up there and where you can see Moab. And um, their offence, I guess, into the land of Canaan was going to take them across um, the Jordan River and toward Jericho there. That's where they're headed. Um, so God has led Israel to the plains of Moab, ready, getting them ready to take the land of Canaan that he had promised them. But along the way, on their journey to Moab, they had learnt, earned a reputation, rather, as a people to be reckoned with because they'd had to conquer various armies along the way. And God was with them. He provided for them. And Israel had victory um, on that conquest. And so as they come to the plains of Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, was mighty nervous at the prospect of all these thousands of people camping um, next to his land. And so he sends for a diviner, a professional magician of sorts, Balaam, to put a curse on Israel so that I guess they would be weakened um, in their ability to, um, to come and to conquer if that was their intent. And he says this, and this is Numbers 22, verse 5 to 6. A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come, put a curse on these people. He's talking to Balaam. Because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I would be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So Balaam the diviner seeks the Lord for his will in this. Um, and whether it's the Lord or some vague concept of God, um, not quite clear. But God himself tells Balaam not to curse the Israelites because they are indeed blessed. He says, you will not curse these people. They are blessed. I have blessed them. Balaam then relays this message back to King Balak. He says, I can't do it. They're blessed. But Balak is undeterred. So Balaam seeks the Lord again, and God tells him in verse 10, 20, okay, go ahead and speak over the people of Israel, but only what I tell you to say. Only what I tell you to say. So Balaam, the diviner, is um, condemned in the rest of Scripture for his numerous failings. He's not spoken well of throughout the rest of Scripture. So we know that his actual intent here is not to... Um, humbly go and submit to God's authority and bless the people of Israel. He's actually got something else um, going on at this point, which you find out through other passages of Scripture. Um, and this is also confirmed in the events that happen in the next day when he goes and God sends an angel with a drawn sword to confront Balaam on his way to speak over Israel. Um, and what happens next is this supernatural encounter between Balaam, his donkey, and the angel of the Lord, all sent to tell Balaam. That's the speaking donkey passage in the Bible you might be familiar with. So all this happens in sum to send Balaam a serious message that you must only speak what I tell you over the people of Israel or else. And in the scripture, what happens next, it almost amounts to something comical to read because Balaam is here now humbled, absolutely humbled at this point, ready to obey Yahweh, the Lord's word. 
And he and the king Balak go up to a high place. There might be a slide there where we can see um, the plains of Moab. Um, Or yes, that one's good. A high place where they can see part of the Israelite camp below them. And Balak, the king, he builds this altar for Balaam. They make offerings in preparation to receive a message to speak over Israel. And Yahweh, the Lord, he meets with Balaam and puts a message in his mouth to speak. And in the presence of King Balak and all the princes of Moab, remember who had employed him to curse Israel, this is what Balaam utters. This is what God gave him to say. And he did obey and indeed give it. In chapter 23, verses 7 to 10. Then Balaam spoke this message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom God has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Does it sound like a curse to you? I don't think so. So Balak is dismayed. The king is dismayed. He's like, you fool, I employed you to curse Israel. And here you go, you're blessing them. What are you doing? But Balaam reminds him, I can only speak. And he told the king this, I will only speak what the Lord instructs me to speak. So Balak hurries Balaam over to another corner, up to another high place where he can see another part of the Israelite camp. And he says, here, maybe from this position, curse them for me. Again, try again. And so they go through the whole altar offering routine again. And the Lord this time gives Balaam this oracle in chapter 23, verses 18 to 24. Then he spoke his message, arise, Balak, and listen, hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I've received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what the Lord has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. (laughs) The blessing just got better. (laughs) Round two, as if round one wasn't enough. Balaam prophesies further blessing on the people of Israel. We see here God gets his way. Human plans, human schemes cannot stand against the Lord's will. And so King Balak at this point, he says, forget it. Don't worry about speaking anything. This is clearly not working. You are making things worse. But Balaam refuses and says, I told you from the start, I've got to speak what God told me to say. And uh, so for a third time, Balaam seeks the Lord and for a word for Israel, and he utters this in chapter 24, verses 3 to 9. And he spoke this message, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, 
who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, and again, they have the strength of a wild ox, they devour hostile nations, they break their bones in pieces, with their arrows they pierce them. Like a lion they crouch and lie down, like a lioness, who dares rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. (laughs) Three times now, they have been blessed abundantly by the Lord through the mouth of a pagan diviner. This is absolutely comical. King Balak is infuriated and he just tells Balaam on nonsense terms, go home, I'm not even going to pay you for your services. I asked you to curse them and all you have done is bless them three times. But again, Balaam sticks by his agreement and says, God's given me one more thing to say. Before I go, I've got to warn you of what these people will do to you in the days to come. I wouldn't be feeling too good now if I was King Balak. And in chapter 24, verses 17 to 19, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom, that was a land, a nation will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. And it goes on and on to utter more doom and ruin for the people of Canaan in that final oracle. God uses a pagan diviner not only to bless Israel but to prophesy of the coming of King David and the final coming of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you heard it there. star will come out of Jacob a scepter will rise out of Israel. It's talking about, first of all, King David, and finally culminating in King Jesus. So, we'll come back to our question now, having read and explored that together. How does God respond when we sin? Remember, Israel had spent 40 years rebelling time after time against God, demonstrating a heart bent, on doing their own thing, complaining, whinging, whining, trashing really his reputation among themselves as a nation, but also among the nations around them. And absolutely, there were consequences for their rebellion. 40 years of wandering in the desert, a journey that should have taken about 11 days, ended up with, um, and it should have culminated in unfathomable blessing for them. It ended up taking 40 years and um, none of them seeing that promise about their children. God does absolutely take sin seriously, and he judges sin. And yet, God. What does God give the people of Israel from the mouth of a pagan diviner, employed by a pagan king, bent on their destruction? What does he give them? He gives them blessing. He gives them blessing. He is faithful to his promise to Israel and he will not give up on them. 
You see, when I read this account in the scripture, I am always taken aback by the reality that the people in the camp of Israel, it seems, from the scriptural account, have no idea of what is happening up in the hills above them at this time. They don't know of the blessings, of the request for a curse which amounts to a blessing, none of that. They are completely ignorant of what is happening in, I guess, the spiritual realm, which will absolutely take effect. And we know from history recorded that it did take effect um, in terms of their conquest of Canaan, but more than that, the coming of Jesus and the reign and rule of King Jesus. It was to take effect in the days, weeks, months, years, centuries, millennia ahead. They had no idea of all that. While they were down, anything, if they're anything like um, their reputation that's preceded them, probably complaining in the camp as all this is happening. They rebelled and God blessed. They whined and God blessed. They disobeyed. God blessed. They cursed and God blessed. You see, God just can't help it. He can't help it because it is who he is. As we said earlier, God is holy. That means he is absolutely one of a kind. He blows all of our categories. We cannot try to get our minds or our hearts even around who God is, around his character, around his nature, because he is nothing like us. All of us as humans are just like shadows, if you like. We are absolutely made in the image of God, but in our fallen state, we are like shadows of the one who made us. We are nothing like God, and he gets to decide In his holiness and in his sovereignty, he gets to decide the terms by which he relates to humanity. He gets to decide. And he chooses to bless. He chooses to bless. We see in Leviticus, as we saw last week, numbers, the whole account of scripture culminating in Jesus, that God is absolutely absolutely serious about punishing sin and it would be remiss of us this morning not to pay attention to that. Israel absolutely were judged in the desert for their sin and their position in not wanting to trust God and God's seriousness about sin is seen most clearly in Jesus. If there wasn't a problem that needed to be dealt with in order to bridge the gap, in order to make relationship possible between humankind and God, What was the use? What was the need, rather, for Jesus if there wasn't a problem that needed to be solved? Because Jesus was the only sinless human, fully God, fully human, that was able to pay the price for sin, which in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. A spotless sacrifice, as we saw in Leviticus last week, is what was required, what God has set as the terms And none of us could do that for ourselves because we are with sin. Without Jesus, we are with sin. And Jesus was the only one who could do that for us. And the Bible says that in the same way as the Israelites were God's chosen people, when we come to Jesus, when we accept his payment on our behalf for our sin, when we desire to live our lives not turning away from God but instead in step, with God, we too are God's chosen people. But the thing is, right, we can do all of that and we can know in a very legal sense 
that we are in right relationship with God, that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. But the reality is this, that we have an enemy and sometimes even our own memory and our own disappointments in ourselves that can try to trick us as God's chosen children, loved, um, marked out for his own, can try to trick us into believing that, well, maybe actually God isn't really that into me. Maybe I'm saved and I know that in a very legal sense, like, oh yes, like Jesus sacrificed for me, his blood cleanses me of all sin, but maybe God saved me, but I've sort of just scraped into salvation, into his kingdom, into his family by the skin of my teeth. Like maybe God's sort of standing somewhere over there and he, can, he sort of can barely just even look at me. He can barely even... Um, he's sort of a bit disgusted, actually, that I'm part of his family, a bit offended. I'm saved, but only just. Only just. That is a very real experience for many, many people in the faith, that we can't actually... Poss- how could we possibly be actually loved by God? How could he want to bless us? How could that be his heart? But the story of the Israelites in the desert would absolutely tell us otherwise. And Jesus himself this morning would tell us otherwise. And these are his words in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All, not some, not a select few, not those who have lived a pretty ethical and moral life before coming to Jesus or since coming to Jesus, all that the Father gives, not even those that Jesus himself has chosen, the Father sets us aside for relationship, for union with himself. That should give us confidence today, friends. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. These are Jesus' own words. Is there a surer foundation on which we could build our lives, friends? There is absolutely not. His intent and his promise cannot be clearer. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And if you look at the original Greek of the words that were recorded in the scriptures, the emphasis here is even clearer than we might make out in our modern translation. It's essentially as if Jesus is saying, I will never, no, not ever, ever, ever cast them out. Never cast out. This morning, friends, we come here, we come to God's house together to worship to fellowship as sheep in need of a shepherd. We are all in the same boat. The good shepherd, we need him, the shepherd who looks after his sheep. And I believe this morning that God, Jesus, our good shepherd, wants to do some heart work in us this morning to reassure us to the very depths of our being that we are his, that we can have absolute rest absolute peace, absolute confidence in our relationship with him because that is his intent. All that the Father gives me 
will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. You see, God is entirely, as we've said a few times at least this morning, and we have been for a while now in our God's Story series, God is entirely different to anyone, any experience of relationship that you or I could ever have. The faithfulness with which he engages us, his promise of blessing over us is entirely different, of an entirely different nature to anything else that we could ever experience in this life. You might have experienced rejection before at the hand of a loved one whom you trusted, but God will never fail you. He will never cast you out. Maybe you've been overlooked for friendship and you feel like you've been wondering, well, what's wrong with me? Why won't people befriend me? What, why, uh, why am I always left out? God will never cast you out and he is faithful to the end. Maybe you've been wronged or mistreated in a workplace, bullied, even abused. God will never fail you. He is faithful. He will never cast you out. You might have been shunned. You might have been sidelined. You might have been overlooked. Maybe you're hurting, broken, feeling lonely, low, abandoned. God will never cast you out. His, the faithfulness that he offers to us, his people, his chosen people, as to Israel in the desert and all the way through the scripture is absolutely unparalleled. He will never cast you out. All you need to do is come. Some of you here or listening this morning might have heard of Bunyan before. He's most famous for his work, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, However, he was a prolific um, Christian writer. And um, in 1678, he penned the work, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And he loved to um, pen works based solely around a single scripture. And um, the scripture that he penned this work on was John 6.37, All the Father comes All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And here he writes, and this is us this morning, however many hundred years later, they that are coming to Jesus Christ are oftentimes heartily afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. For had there been a proneness in us, had there not been a proneness in us to fear casting out, Christ needed not to have waylaid our fear, as he has done by this great and strange expression in no wise, or our modern translation, I will never cast out. For this word in no wise cuts the throat of all objections, and it was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end and to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. But I am a great sinner, say you, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ, but I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ, but I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. 
I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. How good is that? How good is that? We are talking here this morning, friends, of Jesus' heart for his people. More than the once saved, always saved doctrine, it's more than that. We're talking of Jesus' heart to persevere for his people, with his people. We're talking about what motivates his actions, his promises, all of his blessing toward us. He will never cast out. I've been reading lately a little book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And uh, if you haven't read this book and you're looking for something to read in terms of being able to really feast on in your relationship with Christ, I would highly recommend this book. It is absolutely a life changer in terms of his the way that he unpacks the heart of Christ through the scriptures, you should absolutely get your hands on this book, Gentle and Lowly. And I'm going to read a short passage from here as we come towards the end of our time this morning. Have you considered what is true for you if you are in Christ? In order for you to fall short of loving embrace into the heart of Christ, both now and into eternity... Christ himself would have to be pulled down from heaven and put back in the grave. His death and resurrection make it just for Christ never to cast out his own, no matter how often they fall. And that's what we're talking about before. There's a legal sense by which we are justified. We are made right with God. But he goes on to say, animating. So fueling this work of Christ is the heart of Christ. He cannot bear to part with his own even when they most deserve to be forsaken. Remember, back in the desert, Israel in the desert. But I, raise your objections. None can threaten those invincible words. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Raise your objections. None can threaten, none, those, these invincible words. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Not ever, ever, ever. Never cast out. We're going to um, take a moment now to um, come around the communion table this morning because this message, as our messages always are, Come, they find their very centre in the cross, don't they? If not for Jesus' death and then his resurrection, none of this. But Jesus is the centrepiece. So I'd like to invite the welcome team to come and hand out the communion now. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. This um, week just gone, we had uh, some time off as a family and we went to uh, Sovereign Hill uh, for a day with the kids. And if you haven't been to Sovereign Hill before, it's a, I guess, a living museum, I think is one of the ways that they might describe it. A living museum 
um, of time in the gold rush days. So time when... <laughs> Would you like to come and talk with Mummy? Come to Mummy. <laughs> Naomi came to Sovereign Hill too during the week. Did you have fun? <laughs> We've had enough time, Mummy. I've preached long enough, I think. <laughs> Do you want to listen to my story about Sovereign Hill? You listen. You hold my hand and we'll talk together. So um, we went to Sovereign Hill this week. And um, if you haven't been before, it is a living museum of time in the gold rush days in Victoria. You can walk around, you know, experience what the camp of the gold miners would have been like, the main street back then, all the different trades. And it is absolutely set up to replicate as best as possible time in the gold rush era, 1850s to late 1800s. Um, and in that time, um, you know, streets weren't as we would have them now. Streets were not made, and it's okay, you go back to Liberty Kids. I'll stay with Amy here. Thanks, bub. Thank you. <laughs> um, streets weren't made as they were here. You know, you've got dirt, dirt streets trodden by horse hooves and carts, which the kids love seeing time after time, loop after loop of Sovereign Hill. Um, cobblestone, you know, that blue stone sort of cobblestone look as well. Um, and at one point during the day, the girls were watching a pantomime with Joel, and Judah had had enough by that point, and so I took him on a little walk down the street. We went into the stables, and um, we patted the horse there, and Judah's sort of just at the age where he's walking, but he's not quite steady on his feet all the time. So you've got very uneven surfaces in Sovereign Hill, and um, he's walking through the horse stables, and then there was this steep dip. I mean, like, steep dip. Like, we all, as steady-footed people, would struggle to navigate this, but this is like a 20-month-old who's not quite steady on his feet trying to navigate this steep dip on cobblestone. And um, at that point, he reaches out for my hand, right? He reaches out for my hand as if to say, Mum, can you steady me? And... I, as the parent, recognise, OK, so he needs some help here. And I reach down and I hold on to him. And at that point, is it Judah, my son, who is holding on to me and is sure that his grip on me is going to steady him? No, it's not. I, as the parent, am the one who is making sure that my child does not fall on that uneven footing. And it is exactly the same with Jesus and us. It is not us that hold on to Christ. Absolutely, we come to Christ. First, we have to respond yes. He has given us the will to do that. We say yes, empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin with, but we say yes, empowered by his Spirit to come to Christ, but he holds on to us. We do not hold on in our salvation. It is not us that are holding on to God. And if we were to let our grip go, we would suddenly fall. God is the one who is holding us to, on to us and making sure that we stay in the faith. He is blessing us all the time. In, fight, in spite of all their failings and rebellion in the desert, God would not let Israel go. He even had a pagan diviner come and bless them in his name. While they were none the wiser in the camp below, he is faithful. Again, from Gentle and Lowly, we'll finish on this this morning. 
Dane Ortland writes, The Bible says that when God looks at his people's sinfulness, his transcendent holiness, his godness, his very divinity, that about God which makes him not us, is what makes him unable to come down on his people in wrath. The sweep of the entire biblical storyline causes us to catch our breath. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. That's why Jesus came. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Wow. If we're honest, friends, that's not the God often of our imagination and our musings, is it? There's something in us which just puts God up there as, like we said earlier, maybe standing off, barely able to stand us. Sort of saved in a very legal sense, but really not wanting anything to do with us. But that is absolutely the furthest from the truth. That is not what the Bible reveals God's heart is towards us. His word tells us that his anger against sin, against sin, against our choice to turn away from him, was satisfied in the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. He died in our place. He died that we might be reconciled with God. So as we come around the communion table this morning, I'd invite us all just to reposition ourselves before our Father in heaven and let's let him set the terms by which he wants to engage with us today and into the seasons ahead in life, the terms by which he loves us. Those who come to him, he will never cast out. Lamentations 3, 19 to 23 says, I remember my affliction and my wandering. Don't we all remember our wandering? The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, his great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning and we are humbled by the extravagant, surprising, um, if we're honest, Lord, completely overwhelming love and mercy, grace that you've shown us through Jesus. Jesus, we we thank you that you were obedient to your Father's will, that you died in our place because there was a penalty for sin and it was death, but because you so wanted to be reunited with us, your people, you took that penalty upon yourself, which is just incredible when we stop and think about that, Lord. You took that penalty upon yourself and now we stand right before you. And God, we know this morning in a legal sense we can be right, but Lord, we want to feel that in the deepest parts of our beings this morning. 
that we are accepted, we are desired, we are valued so highly by you because this is the truth of your word. Time and time and time again, you will never cast us out. And we thank you that your death and your resurrection show us just how strong your promise is in that way. You went, while we were still sinners, Lord, you, you died for us. While we were still sinners, you went all the way for us, Lord. How much more, now that we, are, we stand justified without sin, Lord, will you hold us in the palm of your hand and never let us go. We thank you, Jesus, and as we reflect on your beauty, the beauty of your person, your strong love towards us this morning. We eat and drink in memory of that today and to confirm that truth in our hearts together. Thank you that you first loved us and we say we love you in return, Jesus. Let's eat and drink together. We don't have a God who harbours our sins against us, friends. That is such good news. We have a God who would have us go free and walk light in our lives, knowing that we are secure in his love. And this morning, I'd really like to make available an opportunity after we close. If you're here today and you just feel those strings of your hearts are being tugged this morning and you know there's something in this message God's been speaking to you about and there's something deep happening in your heart this morning, I'd invite you, don't let this moment, don't let this day go past without receiving some prayer. Um, we serve a God who absolutely loves to hear his children and to hear the cries of their hearts and loves to move on those. So I'd invite you as we close this morning to come and receive prayer or find a friend someone that you trust to pray with as well. I'm sure they'd be delighted. Um, I pray that as we go from this place this morning that you can indeed walk light, knowing that, absolutely knowing that you know that you know, not a head thing but a heart thing, that those who have come to Jesus, he will never cast out. We are his people and he speaks blessing over us today. So go and be blessed.